everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. You know, sometimes I have an allergic reaction to testimonies that are all tied up in a nice bow. And it's good sometimes to hear a story that's not done, that's maybe halfway through. And uh, I wonder how many could relate to a story like that. Y'all, y'all know uh, Haven Robinson, little adorable, cute two-year-old uh, daughter of, of Brittany and uh, Pastor Glenn. Um, she's a true COVID baby. Like she was born like right when it started and, and played a little shy with me, which just broke my heart. And now she's all in. She's like, we're, we're buddies. And last week I was leading worship and she, she comes up to me and I, you know, I'd seen her the, the midweek and usually wear my, my baseball cap and she gets right up close to me and says, uh, why is your hair up? And I hear this Brittany laugh from the back, you know how she does. And, uh, I knew immediately what she was talking about, and uh, I said, sweetie, that, that's called male pattern baldness. <laughs> and um, I don't blame precious, innocent Haven. I, I blame Glenn and Brittany <laughs> for raising a child who has this disregard for the most sensitive topic of a middle-aged man. Why is your hair up? I don't know, Haven. <laughs> you may have heard this story before, but there's some new people. I, when, when Vicky and I were expecting, um, we didn't know that our first child would be plural, children, twins. And uh, our first ultrasound, uh, I, I get left out in the waiting room, and I'm finally called in, and Vicky has this sheepish look on her face you know they do the whole like jelly on the belly and a like a scanner or something some price scanner Uh, yeah yep and um and she looks at the the monitor and she says what what do you see and i'm i you've seen them right that's like is a storm coming in from the east coast i don't know um You know, most at-risk teens in the province, and I, I had my child and youth care degree, and I had studied all the child development theorists, and you know, had all those principles of natural and logical consequences and corrective discipline, and had my non-abusive uh, restraint diploma. If things got really out of hand, and so as we were expecting kids, I thought, 
well, gee, I guess I'm kind of the childcare expert here. Uh, I'm going to have to deal with the lion's share of discipline issues because poor sweet Vicky, you know, she doesn't understand what she's gotten herself into. And I, I'm not sure she can play the, the bad cop. And uh, then I had three of the most adorable little girls that you could ever imagine. And I turned into what is uh, technically called, let me check, uh, yeah, a pushover. <laughs> and um, how can... How can I say no to these girls? And so maybe even to this day, it's actually Vicky who has to keep me in line so I don't totally wilt under their power. What a gift. What a gift kids have been. I, don't, I can't remember life before children. And um, I don't have to say this to you either, but you, like, it is not easy. Parenting is not easy. It might be along with marriage one of the best tools in our ongoing sanctification as we learn the hard way what servanthood and patience and sacrifice and humility looks like. It's, it's, it is a lesson in life is not about me, right? So in preparation for our new role as parents, uh, Vicki and I read up on wise instruction and we sought the counsel of others who had you know, years of experience uh, ahead of us. By the way, <laughs> we have found that it is unwise to offer child-rearing advice to young parents who don't ask for it. Sometimes I wish more couples would ask for it. It's been hard to bite my tongue a lot of times. We've seen friends that we would otherwise talk about hard things, but, you know, Parenting advice needs to be one that you're invited into. Am I, am I right? Yeah. yeah, you learned the hard way too, didn't you? You see helicopter parents and they're smothering their kid. I keep quiet. You, you see kids ruling the home like their private fiefdom. I keep quiet. And, and part of me keeps quiet because I know that my opinions are not gospel truth. Every kid is different. The longer I'm a parent, in fact, the more humble I get. I realize I'm not the expert that I thought I was. The last time I was an expert on parenting was just before I had kids. I knew it all, baby. I knew it all. And if you take a brief look at Amazon and the list of parenting books, I mean, there is no shortage of experts telling us how to raise kids um, and each one of them sort of presents their way as the tested proven path to produce well-adjusted college-bound superstars of the future here's the problem have you noticed that uh, often the experts contradict one another one expert emphasizes how important it is to train a baby to sleep alone in the night and uh, there's other advocates of co-sleeping in what's called the family bed. Uh, one expert says to never pick up a crying baby because you'll spoil them. And others advise never to let a baby cry past a minute. Uh, one expert says a baby should always be put to sleep on its back until it's decreed that they should only sleep on their stomach. It, it's, it's confusing. And so we come to this passage in Proverbs that I think, I think has caused 
some of us a lot of shame. It's caused other people a lot of comfort. Who got it right? I wonder if both kind of got it wrong. Uh, we're talking this summer in a series called Coffee Mug Christianity, and those are those verses that look so good on t-shirts and keychains and Facebook posts and coffee mugs, but might have been misunderstood or misapplied or misquoted. And this verse is a great one to, you know, cross-stitch on your little osh-gosh-bagosh jumper or baby blanket. Most of you know it, Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. So, so what do I mean that those who find shame and those who find hope in this verse might both have it wrong? Let, let me paint a picture of two different couples, and, and you may find yourself relating to one more than the other. The first couple, let's call them a Don and Sharon. Don and Sharon have these three grown sons. Uh, one of their sons is a model citizen, got a great job, strong marriage, vibrant walk with God. He's a, he's a young elder apprentice in the church. The other two sons, they're kind of a mess. Uh, one did a brief stint in jail. The other is, is pushing 40 but still hasn't found himself. He's on job number 15. He's on marriage number three. But maybe most difficult is that he's developed this disdain for spiritual things. And obviously church isn't part of his routine. In fact, um, he doesn't make any effort to stay in touch with his own parents unless, of course, he needs something, right? And their two rebellious sons have brought Don and Sharon just a lot of personal heartache. Even though they feel a lot of joy and pride in their one son, the other two cause them to struggle with all kinds of emotion, anger, uh, frustration, embarrassment, uh, shame. Their biggest struggle, however, is with guilt. Lots of guilt. They see their prodigal sons as proof that, that they have failed as Christians. And they can feel that disapproval from their Christian friends. Now, they don't say it out loud, but they don't have to. The second couple, let's call them Mike and Rhonda. They feel zero guilt about their wild child. Uh, actually, they're quite confident that she will one day return to God and, and return to the values by which she was raised. And their confidence comes from the fact that they modeled a sincere and genuine faith. They, they took her to church. She went to King's Kids and Forge. They gave her a great Christian education, which came at no small cost, by the way. Um, they made a rock a midweek priority and, and tried to make sure she hung out with the right friends and participate in the right activities. And in short, they did everything they could to give her a godly, Christ-centered upbringing. But when their daughter went to college, things started to fall apart. By the end of what um, would have been her senior year, she'd soured on her faith, dropped out of school, moved in with her boyfriend. And now, several years later, not a lot has changed. She still hasn't been near a church, 
hasn't married her boyfriend. But Mike and Rhonda, they don't struggle with guilt or shame that, that plagues Don and Sharon. They're disappointed, but they're convinced that sooner or later their daughter will come to her senses, come back to God. In fact, they're banking on God's promise that children raised the right way in a godly home can't stay away forever. They always come back. God brings them back. He promised. So both of these couples are strong Christians, but their responses to their wayward children are just completely different, right? Don and Sharon are riddled with guilt. Mike and Rhonda are filled with hope. Both responses are actually based on a, a flawed assumption. Um, the verse might be interpreted by them this way. A godly home guarantees godly kids. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. But one day. And what Don and Sharon do is they interpret that verse to mean that their home was way more messed up than they thought it was. And Mike and Rhonda interpret it to mean that their daughter has to come back to faith one day. Now, if I had to pick, I sure would rather you be a, a Mike and Rhonda instead of a Don and Sharon. Shame is not part of God's good plan for you. It just, it just isn't. Jesus came to take away shame and guilt, especially this kind of unearned guilt. But in the long run, both couples have kind of bought into the same spiritual myth. Now, here's where some people are going to perhaps feel freed this morning. Others may feel some discouragement. But here's the deal. Proverbs 22 verse 6 is not a promise from God. Promises from God are true and reliable. When God makes a promise, it, it's a done deal. You can take it to the bank. Proverbs 22 is not a promise. It's a what? What? A proverb. How, do you, how did you know it's a proverb? Oh, because you're a PK. No. <laughs> Raise a child in the way he should go. <laughs> you know it's a proverb because it's in the book of Proverbs. Oh, yeah, that gave it away. Uh, it, it, that's why the genre of what we're reading is important. A proverb is just, it's entirely different. Uh, these are observations that are principally true. They are axioms of truth, if you will. They're not guaranteed specifically to work out in all and every circumstance. For instance, Proverbs says, those who work the land will have abundant food. Those who chase fantasies have no sense. Um, can we agree that that is principally true? Like that life works out that way 99% of the time. If you work hard, you will find a measure of success. You will get your needs met. But I bet all of us can think of people where circumstances didn't work out that way. Bad things happened. Uh, random bad luck, if you will. Turns out hard work wasn't a guarantee of abundance. Yet the proverb is principally true. Yeah, and some of us know people who have chased fantasies, wanted a five-hour work week, 
uh, wanted to be a famous YouTube influencer. And guess what? It happened. And it couldn't have happened to a worse person either. The book of Proverbs is called Proverbs and it's comprised of observations about life. But as you know, the righteous aren't always honored. Sometimes the wicked do succeed. Um, the diligent can lose. The lazy can strike it rich. The proverb is still true. It's still God's word. It's just not a promise in the same way that other promises are guaranteed in Scripture. And because Solomon's words here in, in Proverbs 22, verse 6, are still true, it doesn't mean there's a greater probability that children won't totally abandon their spiritual roots, but some will. And that's why Don and Sharon's shame and guilt is so unnecessary. It, it, it's really a lie. I think that comes from the accuser of the brethren. Um, their prodigal sons are, are no more proof that they failed as parents than the untimely death of a young Christian is proof that he or she must have been living some secret sin. Now, Don and Sharon may have been terrible parents, or they may have been the greatest parents ever, but eventually their sons have to answer to God for their own choices. Um, in the meantime, Don and Sharon will be, will be held accountable for how they raised their children, not how their children turned out. I'll say that again because somebody's going to get free this morning of this. Don and Sharon will be held accountable for how they raised their children, not how their children turned out. Okay, Mike and Rhonda's confidence that their daughter will one day return to the Lord, that may very well happen. And I've, I have seen, you have seen all kinds of anecdotal evidence that would back that up. It's a hope grounded not only in a principle, but in prayer. A prayer that God obviously wills and honors and favors. It's just not a guarantee. And it's not repeated elsewhere in the Bible as a guarantee. In fact, let's look carefully at this verse and see if you don't agree. Proverbs 22, 6 starts out with the phrase, train up a child in the way he should go. That seems pretty straightforward. Train a child in the ways of righteousness. Uh, the way I hear young writers talk about discipleship lately is, is apprenticing in the way of Jesus. I like the way that sounds. It's, it's, it's training a child in the way he should go. Now, here's what I came across this week. Some really good Bible scholars who interpret this verse with just a bit more nuance. And they said the verse is more actually or accurately interpreted in the Hebrew to mean something like training a child that aligns with a child aligns with their individual makeup, um, the unique way that every child is, is different. You want to do a great sociological experiment? Have twins. Uh, better yet, have three kids in the span of a year. Uh, I found out not one of them is alike. It's fascinating. Two girls in the same crib, same clothes, same routine, same school, same parents, same, 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 same. So different. 
an introvert, an extrovert, different tastes, preferences, sensitivities. Uh, and of course we had house rules for everyone, but um, the follow-up, the, the disciplinary strategies uh, were so different for every girl. They didn't respond to the same motivations. You know, one child, you just had to look at with a raised eyebrow. And they're like, ah, they confess everything. And uh, another, you have to remove every toy and device and privilege and treat. And they're still like, is that the best you got, you know? <laughs> Kids are wired different, man. And there's all kinds of biblical examples. Cain and Abel. One, one was a shepherd who had a very close relationship with God. The other was a farmer who didn't much care about spiritual things. Speaking of twins, Jacob and Esau. You know, one loved to hunt, be in the outdoors, was his father's favorite. The other liked to cook, hang around the tent, was the mama's boy. And by the way, parents, this is a sin <laughs> that keeps getting repeated throughout Scripture. Favoritism. Don't do it. Don't do it. That's a whole other message. My point is that Christian parents need to teach their children in the path of righteousness and do it in a way that best fits the unique wiring and gifting of their children. You know, the real problem is how this next part of the verse gets twisted. And when he is old, when she is old, they will not depart from it or turn from it. I mean, it doesn't actually say what we think it says, does it? It doesn't say every prodigal will return home. In fact, it kind of says the opposite. It actually says that they won't turn away in the first place. That's a huge difference, right? But remember that this is a, a proverb, not a promise. So it's not saying that a child raised properly will never rebel. It's, it's a principle saying that they are less likely to do so. But the reality is, is that some do rebel. Hello, Jonathan Ganyu, teenager, who I think sometimes is still rebelling. It's why Mike and Rhonda's confidence is kind of unfortunate too, because they, they may set themselves up to be angry with God if their daughter doesn't come back, even though God never actually promised that she would. Some of you might want to ask at this point, well, what about the parable of the prodigal son? There's actually nothing said in that parable about the, the odds of a rebel returning home. In fact, we're too focused on the rebellious son. We've missed the point of the story. The point of the parable is that the love of the father is greater than the sins of both sons, the, the, the rebel and the legalist. The love of the father offers grace and mercy instead of judgment. But here's what really breaks my heart when this verse is used unwisely. It's the guilt, it's the shame that it can induce. The, the parents of adult prodigals with guilt they don't deserve. And you may never have thought about this, but think about the pain and the unnecessary guilt it can bring to parents whose children are you know, hyperactive, learning disabled, emotionally disabled, strong-willed, you know, or just a straight-up rascal. I don't know, anybody got a rascal at home? Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. those hands went up way too quick. Uh, like, you've seen it in the grocery store. You've seen it maybe at church. It's a father or a mother struggling with the behavior of an unruly child. 
What's the first reaction most of us have? It's usually a bit of a harsh judgment of the parents. If only we'd had a good sermon on judgment recently. Didn't Glenn do a great job last week? Yeah. We just don't know the full story. There are all kinds of things. Tourette syndrome, autism, ADD, just a simple case of hardwired stubbornness, you know? And it can make the best of homes look like they need a visit from social services, right? It may even lead us into this whole dark rabbit hole about the sins of the father and the sins of the mother and about generational sin and our own culpability and the decisions that our kids make. They have been struggling with this question since the garden. Here's what Ezekiel 18 says. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. You know, every son and daughter of Adam is born with a sin nature. Every one of us has a propensity for self-centered, sinful behavior, and it's not something that can be eliminated by this carefully controlled environment or even by great role modeling of Christian parents. Our sin nature is not just this mere you know, theological concept. It, it is a real and present danger. Sometimes it gets the upper hand. And when it does, it's, it's not someone else's fault. It's not even mom and dad's fault. Now, here's the other side, the flip side of this unwarranted guilt. And that's foolish pride. It, um, it's something that seems to be particularly present among those who've bought into the myth of this verse, that, that the, the good and godly homes always, always, always produce good and godly kids. And, uh, and just so happen that they have children who are naturally compliant, easygoing, academically gifted. And it's not hard to see why people would want to take credit for that. Uh, when anything turns out well, we'd all prefer to think we had something to do with it, right? But sometimes the foolishness of our pride doesn't get exposed until kids become adults, until they leave the nest, until they have to make their own choices, pick their own philosophy of living. In my own small group, where we all have adult kids, um, all these godly and wise and mature people Half of our adult kids um, are serving God, you know. Uh, many of our adult kids are not. And that may, that may swap in a few years. We, we just don't know. But one thing we don't do is we don't shame those whose kids have wandered from the faith. And we don't exalt those whose kids haven't. You, you with me? Yeah. Here's another twist to remember, <clears throat> that an ungodly home doesn't guarantee ungodly kids either. How many of you have known quite, you know, quite a few people who grew up in homes where God was only mentioned in conjunction with you know, curse words, and, and even grew up in homes where parents scoffed at the idea of God, and some of you are living with that reality right now, and many of those people have turned into 
the most Christ-like people that I know. And, and some of them are sitting in this room. So <clears throat> please don't misunderstand it, what I've said this morning. None of what I've said is meant to say that parents don't have responsibility for how they raise their kids or that it doesn't matter how we parent. It most certainly does, okay? The Old Testament places this high priority on godly parenting. This, we read this when we dedicate children at NAC from Deuteronomy 6. <clears throat> These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. The New Testament also makes it clear that parenting you know, is, is passing the spiritual torch on. Here's what Ephesians 6, 4 says. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. But parenting is, is a difficult job. Advice is easy. Criticism is easy. For those of us who are in the midst of the battle, we know it's not so simple. Um, things that sound easy in a sermon or in a book or in a right now video, Bible study, you know, is usually a lot more difficult in real life. And maybe you're sitting out there this morning and you are a parent with a child at home and you're wondering, is there any biblically based principles for raising your kids? Um, I mean, it's a subject really for another message series, but of course, Tons, yes. The Bible has all kinds of wise instruction for how we ought to raise our kids. In fact, just really quickly, let me share a couple things that, that I've learned along the way through Scripture. One important principle, I think, is to instruct verbally. You know, I, I'm not sure if it was Francis of Assisi who gets quoted or maybe misquoted all the time. You, you may have heard this said. Um, Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. And I like that little quote, whoever said it, but I don't like when it's used to justify not talking about the things of God or not evangelizing. Um, what do we tell our kids? Use your words, right? And that's my admonition to you. Use your words. Make sure to speak biblical principles into your kids' lives. Let them hear what your expectations are for their behavior and why. Uh, sometimes you'll hear at a funeral something like, oh, my dad, my mom was uh, quite a private person. They never talked about their faith, but I know deep down they were devoted. Well, quietly living your faith is good, but so is articulating it, teaching it. That's really what that Deuteronomy verse is about, right? Another important principle is related to the first, and that is to live authentically. Do your best to be a good example of the biblical principles that you've spoken, them, spoken to them about. And when you find that they're not perfect, and they figure out that you're not perfect, admit your mistakes. Be the first to apologize. Be quick to forgive a third important principle. Love patiently. 
Um, being a godly parent means that you offer your children the same patience that God offers you when you're struggling in some area of your life. And we all struggle in some area. Um, discipline carefully. Don't be overly harsh. Be sure to fit the discipline with the offense, right? Don't crush the spirit of your kid. Understand the different sensitivity levels of your kids. I like this word picture that we as parents are to give our kids roots and wings. You know, these principles are meant to give our children the, the foundational roots they need to flourish, and even more so when the day comes when they have to fly the nest and, and be on their own. Make sure that you give them the freedom to do so as well. Here's something to think about as we close, uh, parents. Sometimes the traits that we are troubled by in the younger child become their strengths later on in life. Have you noticed that? The stubbornness of a three-year-old is called backbone and conviction when they're 33. Uh, the highly praised entrepreneur who's seen as thinking outside the box was probably a kindergartner who got in trouble for refusing to color inside the lines. A class clown, uh, Brent, sometimes, uh, you know, might become a perpetual goof-off, but they also become a leader that so many people line up to follow. The bottom line is that children aren't, you know, a mindless lump of clay. Our master artist uh, is a He's an artisan. He, he creates masterpieces. But the accomplishments or the sins of our children don't necessarily reflect on our parenting skills or our godliness any more than the, you know, the output of the annual harvest necessarily represents the skill or the godliness of a farmer. Um, there are too many variables that come into play. And all we can do by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit's empowerment is to do our best. The final outcome is ultimately not in our hands. It's, it's, it's a hard thing for us to let go of, I realize. You know what we can do, though? Something that I know makes a tangible and spiritual difference. We can pray. We can pray. And I'm living proof that the prayers of mothers and fathers prayers of grandmas, prayers of youth leaders,